what's different now is instead of one variant at a time that we can talk about, okay, Delta and now Omicron, and then even within that, BA1, BA2, BA5, now it's it's not one thing. It's not one thing in any one place, and it's certainly not one thing around the world. So instead of having one variant that would kind of come along and rise really quickly, cause a very distinct and large peak, and then descend to be replaced by the next thing that came along, instead of large tsunamis and you know waves of various height, it's a rising sea level and then high and low tide. To support the show and get access to our second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it from your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So I am here today with my guest, Professor Ryan Gregory. He is a biologist and professor at University of Guelph in Canada who primarily researches genomic evolution. And I've asked him to come on the show to talk about the most recent variant of COVID that is surging called XBB 1.5. Professor Gregory, welcome to the Death Panel. It's so great to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, Ryan, I'm really glad to have you here so that we can have a frank discussion about the latest variant that everyone is talking about. And I want us to not just talk about this in the way that it's usually sort of discussed, which is a sort of like, is this going to be as bad as the last one? And that's the only metric that, that we sort of use to understand what the importance or significance of the virus is. And I think ultimately what I want us to talk about today is not just XBB 1.5, but I want us to be able to talk about variants in general and what is important to understand about viral evolution and selective pressure, and also most importantly, how our policies and sort of political and social responses to COVID influences the pandemic in very material biological ways, which you would think by this time, three years into the pandemic, that this would be something that there was sort of a broad, common understanding of. But I think it's still something that, you know, not a lot of people understand. And the mythology that exists instead really kind of feeds the COVID complacency echo chamber. We're always comparing it to the sort of last peak, and that hides the way that the virus actually sort of exists in our lives. So, We've been covering COVID on this podcast for a long time, and a big part of that coverage has been about understanding how policies impact selective pressure. I think it was back in either December 2020 or January 2021, we had Paul B. Nash on the show to talk about how letting it rip while rolling back layered protections as the vaccine was just getting rolled out was a recipe for disaster asking for something to go wrong and potentially squandering all of the hard work that people had been putting into vaccines and therapeutics. And so many of those concerns that he raised all those months ago have actually come to pass. Our tools are being made less effective the more that we have let it rip. So to just start us off for context, XBB 1.5 has recently emerged as a dominant strain in the United States, 
jumping from 2% of cases to nearly 30% of cases over three weeks in December. So XBB 1.5 accounts for more than 70% of new cases in the Northeast United States. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, is this uh, more transmissible? Will it be as bad as the last one? Do we need to worry? Is discussing variants at all fear mongering? (laughs) You know, the usual stuff. And we're not going to go there today. Instead, Ryan, will you start us off by explaining XBB 1.5's emergence, you know, how it relates to the first Omicron variant. And I'd like to just sort of start us off with what we know and what we don't know. And then we can get into sort of how viral evolution works a little, because I think all of that is really key to understanding not just the deal with this variant is, but why we need to stop focusing on sort of single variants and focus more on the landscape of all the variants going on right now as a whole. Sure. Uh, so XBB15 is a third generation descendant of the XBB variant. So XBB, if you if you uh, are familiar with how that Pango lineage naming system works, each of those subsequent dots in the name, the 1.5 indicates a descendant of. So XBB.1 is the first identified descendant of XBB, and XBB.1.5 is the fifth identified descendant of XBB1. Uh, the X in that naming system indicates it's it was a variant that formed through recombination. And mm. what that means is there were two variants that infected not only the same individual, but the same cell in the same individual and under, underwent an exchange of uh, genetic information. So they essentially uh, hybridized within that cell. And so you get this new variant that is a combination of uh, portions of the genomes of two pre-existing variants due to a co-infection. So that's what the X means. The uh, XBB15 itself is not a hybrid in that it is a a descendant through the sort of more typical mutational changes from XBB1, which was descended from XBB, which was the hybrid. The first XBB uh, arose, it's always quite difficult to, to pinpoint exactly where something first evolved but we can talk about where it became most common or where it was first detected. And so when I say it evolved there, often that's shorthand and maybe should be stated more clearly that it was detected there and rose to prominence there probably, you know, before many other places. But testing is not even across the whole world, right? <laughs> no, certainly not at all. So XBB, that initial hybridization probably or seems to have occurred uh, in India and was most common there. It did cause a moderate wave in Singapore. That's the original XBB. And then there was some discussion about how XBB had arrived in the US and was you know, potentially going to cause some issues there, especially after seeing that it did rise in Singapore uh, and noting that Singapore's vaccination rates and masking rates and things were better than you know, various other places. XBB itself, didn't really take off in any major way, certainly not in relation to the previous COVID waves. And depending on where you are, you may be experiencing your fifth uh, Omicron wave. I don't, that's not true in the US exactly, but in Canada and the UK and other parts in Europe and stuff, this is the fifth Omicron wave, different variants responsible for them within Omicron. So uh, it didn't take off, you know, in any kind of major way, certainly not in, in North America. Most of what's happened in the last while since the, say, the summer and then into the fall were BA5 lineages. XBB 
is a hybrid of two BA2 lineage variants. And we can talk about sort of what that means, but but two different sort of sublineages within Omicron. Uh, so, so, you know, we kind of f- forgot about XBB and said, okay, that didn't go, you know, as badly as it might have, and that's great. Uh, but it continued to evolve. And XBB15, again, seems to have evolved, or at least was detected and is rising to prominence. Uh, in New York State, and you know, at least in the northeastern U.S., where, as you mentioned in the intro, it's it's increased really rapidly in that period. Um, being a hybrid, it, you know, or being descended from a hybrid isn't super unique. That happens, and, yeah. and we've, we've not only seen hybridization amongst, say, two members of the BA2 lineage. There are also variants that you know get nicknamed Delta Crons, which are <laughs> you know recombinants between a Delta and an Omicron. So it can be that distant. It is still all SARS-CoV-2. So you can get, you know, across these rather divergent lineages. And I'm happy to talk too about, you know, what's different about Omicron group versus the Alpha Delta, you know, kind of kind of naming that we had before and the distinct variants we had before. So you can get, you know, cross between fairly distant lineages. Being a being a recombinant itself and even being a deltacron doesn't automatically mean it's any more of a concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can, you know, it's just another mechanism that generates variability. It could be worse for the virus. And those are ones we don't see because they don't rise to prominence and they don't get detected. Uh, it can be the same as what it was, or it can be better for the virus, worse for us. And that can be that it's better at getting from one host to another, or it can be better at, you know, replicating really quickly within hosts, or it can attack a wider range of tissues effectively or what have you. So XBB itself didn't do a whole lot. And part of the reason for that is XBB had mutations that made it more immune escaping, more immune evasive, meaning that, you know, it, it altered the spike protein in such a way that existing antibodies were less effective. At binding to to that and and so therefore the host's immune system even with past infection or or vaccination was less effective at detecting and and neutralizing the virus but those mutations compromised another property that you often hear about which is ace2 binding mm-hmm. that's the ability of the virus to attach to and enter cells using the ace2 receptor on the surface of the cell so if you're good at one, but not good at the other, it's it remains to sort of be seen what the outcome will be. So some of the other variants that have risen to prominence, like the BQ variants, which are BA5 lineage, those are kind of the opposite. So they're pretty good at ACE binding, less good than XBB at immune evasion, but they also rose. So there's different sort of ways to be good at infecting hosts. So you can either get around their immune system detection, or you can be really good at binding to cells XBB was more along the lines of that first one, which is evading immunity, less sort of good at binding to cells. The the thing that distinguishes XBB15, the descendant of XBB, the third generation descendant, is the mutations it has undergone restored ACE2 binding. Mm. So now it has both immune evasion and strong ACE2 binding. So it kind of has both sets of features. It doesn't have that same trade-off that, you, that we saw in, in several other variants. So that makes it of concern. Because it has sort of the two ways uh, that we most often talk about with regard to what makes a variant good at infecting people in the context of, you know, existing immunity in the population. So it has these features that made it worthwhile thinking about and tracking. The other factor that makes it noteworthy, obviously, 
is the extraordinarily rapid growth of that particular variant in at least you know regionally within the US. So that's a kind of record level of growth advantage over the variants that were there before. It shot up really quickly. Now there, you know, CDC uses modeling to sort of make projections about where things stand and they maybe overshot in the early one when it was reported it was 40% and i think you used the revised numbers of around 30% yeah i think it's 20 28 points 7 or 28 and yeah, then, something and, like that and and fine right but either way um that's a rapid increase over a couple of weeks yeah under a very short period of time for sure in a very yeah. short period of time so the, so so in any case the the kinds of things that would make a variant worth watching and worth talking about and worth being able to identify clearly from other things that are out there are those two properties of the virus itself, you know, its ability to evade uh, host immunity and how well it can bind to and bind to and enter cells. And the other piece of that is, is it actually translating? Is that manifesting as success in the human population in, in terms of growth of that variant? So you can have, you know, on paper, uh, a variant that has all kinds of you know features that might make it concerning and it doesn't actually go anywhere right biology is not easily uh it's not programmatic yeah not programmatic in that sense there's many many factors right so in this case you have sort of all three of those things you have the two the two factors that we watch uh most often with regard to what mutations do and and a clear signal that it is actually successful uh in in infecting new hosts so that's why xbb15 is garnering a lot of news but uh, you know i think you in your introduction quite clearly and aptly uh summarized the the idea that it's not about one variant at a time anymore so in the us right now even with xbb15 increasing there's still bq1 and bq11 mm-hmm. you know still at high frequency and doing and doing what they do uh and and probably contributing a lot to surges in in hospitalizations and so on that are going on, um, for example, in New York. So that's in North America, or at least in, in, in the United States. In Canada, XBB15 is showing up, but it's not dominant at all yet. So we're still looking at BA5 lineages mostly. Uh, in the UK and in New Zealand, you've got CH11. In Australia, you've got uh, XBF, which is another hybrid variant. So you've got, you know, and then in China, it's, it's to, two totally different variants that actually already circulated outside of China in the fall and in the late summer and fall. So it's worth noting that even if you're just thinking about this very moment, even if you're only thinking about one place, such as the Northeastern US, it's still not just one variant. Right, right. Right. And so that's that, yeah. So that's where we're at with XBB15. Is it the most transmissible variant detected yet? Um, which is what you know World Health Organization has said. Um, that's a difficult thing to kind of say for sure, because there's different ways to talk about transmission or transmissibility it has the properties i mentioned and it grow, it's growing very quickly at least where it originally occurred or originally started to take off so in that regard sure but you know it's it's such a hard thing to kind of say well is this more transmissible than the first omicron because the transmissibility the, the the observed sort of effect also depends on the situation with the host and in the case of the first omicron you know, it took off really quickly, right? Like it took off, mm -hmm. uh, but it's also a different context for host immunity and so on. So, so I, I haven't said anything like that, um, but it is certainly a variant that has unique properties and is and is well worth watching. But it is certainly not the only one causing surges around the world.
Mm-hmm. Honestly, it's I, I really appreciate the way that you laid that out because it kind of shows both the chaos and the neutrality of viral evolution. You know, it's not that viruses have some sort of intent when they evolve. Obviously, there is a process of sort of different evolutionary results are going to result in things being able to survive or being able to become dominant. But I think when people think about viral evolution, they think about things in a very linear way, a kind of point A to point B to point C to point D and so on until I guess you get to that magic cuddly variant that's supposed to exist at the end of the rainbow where everything's fine. And I I think that's a really, uh, obviously that's a very short-sighted way of thinking about it. And it's also a huge misunderstanding of how viral evolution progresses and doesn't leave any room for understanding what recombination is. But I think part of that misunderstanding and why this sort of mythology of of evolution as a very linear process persists is because I think people don't think about, um, among other things, how many viruses are in our body at one time, Mm -hmm. how you can be infected with multiple types of COVID, not just in the same body, but as you were saying, in the same cell. I think we think of things in a very... In a way that I, I, I this this sort of framing I, I think of because of how we talk about the idea of biocertification in in the realm of understanding disability, right? Where you have the idea that the kind of myth, the fantasy that you could prove who a valid disabled person is and who a, a not valid or a not true disabled person is. So this, so all of what you're describing, and certainly the the example of of SARS-CoV-2 variant evolution is a very, very long-standing issue in communicating about evolution in general. So one of the things that still is extraordinarily difficult to get across is a shift from what you know philosophers would call typological thinking to thinking that's based on populations or, or variation. Mm-hmm. So there's often this notion of a spe- the species is this, and here's the type specimen, and any variability is sort of a deviation from that defining individual within the species. And really, biology is not about that. Biology is about variation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's about change, and it's about um, dynamic processes. The, 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 the co- concept of evolution as being linear and progressive goes back beyond Darwin and it persisted into post-Darwinian evolutionary thinking in Victorian England. The idea of progress was was pretty prominent and it just got factored really heavily into interpretations of evolution. So for me, it's been less about, you know, this notion that viruses will always evolve towards being benign and more, much more. And I've been teaching about this for close to 20 years. It's about, is it heading towards increased complexity? you know, are human beings the pinnacle of a linear evolutionary process and those kinds of misconceptions that you spend a lot of time trying (laughs) to clarify as well, right? So to me, there's a lot of very similar uh, parallels here between trying to explain evolutionary ideas in general versus, you know, uh, is it specific to this this particular case? I don't think it is. It's a great illustration and I I really like it as as a teaching tool. I've used it since winter 2021 as a case study in my evolution course, but it's um, it, it's similar problems all the way across. And I think it's useful to just remember that you're you're talking about a little piece of RNA that happens to you know have properties that allow it to get into your cells and make your cells replicate it. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much it. And so, you know, viruses are very error prone. 
They have really lousy copy editing, and so they make mistakes at a high rate. And so what that means is there's kind of constantly variation introduced into the gene pool of the viruses. And some of those changes will, uh, you know, make it worse for the, like the virus will happen to do worse. Some of those changes will make it do better, and many of them will have no effect whatsoever. Then you add on the layer of what does that mean to do better? Well, that is context dependent. So we right. always say that the fitness of a mutation depends entirely on the environment. So you can imagine, let's say you have a mutation that makes your feathers blue. Is that good or bad? The next thing you need to say is, well, where do they live? Right. Right. I mean, if they live in a red background, that that's a terrible thing. If they live in a blue background, it's great. It's totally dependent on the environment and the environment changes. In the case of the virus, we are the environment. Mm -hmm. So and our immune, our collective immunity and within individual hosts, our immunity. So that's the environment and that's changing and that's what's going on. That's why different variants are evolving in different directions. It's also why the situation in China is not the same in terms of variant evolution as it is outside China right now. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to kind of talk about that too. What I think some of the, you know, issues of different directions of evolution are, but you're right. There's this myth that it, it's going to inevitably end up in a certain place, just like there's a myth that, you know, evolution tends towards increased intelligence or complexity or, you know, human-like qualities. And, you know, why are there still apes if we're descended from apes kinds of questions, right? Which is <laughs> the fundamental misunderstanding about how evolution operates. Right. And was the core inspiration for eugenics. And that's, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think one of the things that's it's just so important to sort of actually break it out and talk about in terms of viral evolution and variants, what's, what's actually going on? Because I think this kind of question of, is it going to be more severe? Is it more transmissible? You know, it, it, they almost replaced the questions that folks were asking in the beginning that were just flat out wrong. Like, is it going to be more virulent, right? Or is it going to, yeah. you know, and and I think that we're still kind of like when when we approach sort of understanding why a variant is a variant of concern with foregrounding these questions of, well, is it going to be worse than that really bad wave? Or is it going to be sort of as bad? It's a way to also kind of ratchet down <laughs> expectations, right? And kind of normalize some of those high levels of infection. And I think it also kind of separates the high levels of infection that are circulating as having a kind of not really very concrete causal relationship to viral evolution. I think it helps to kind of mystify the relationship between our actual infections and the kind of results that we see around us in the world in terms of how the virus is continuing, changing, and ongoing. And, and I think this is one of the, the sort of struggles that people who are advocating for COVID um, protections right now for the next year, two years are really going to be sort of trying to struggle to communicate this to people because it's just so collapsed into this like, well, is it more serious than the worst time ever? I mean, this is like a kind of classic logical fallacy, the worst problem fallacy where you're saying, well, if oh, sure. imagine, imagine if we talked about hurricanes like that, right? Right. Unless it's the worst thing ever, then why are we doing, we shouldn't do anything about it is, is faulty logic. And it's frankly ridiculous. But so much of the way that the conversation around variants is approached, that attitude is foregrounded. And not only does it hide the sort of actual truth of what's going on in terms of, yeah, when we decided to let it rip, there were consequences in the population and we're living through those in real time. 
And they don't just like exist in the now, they continue in the future and the decisions we make now are going to shape some of the variants that we're going to experience going forward. That, that's right. And, and, and as I said, where, you know, fitness is dependent on the environment it, and we are the environment, we are not neutral in our ability to alter that environment for the virus, right? So if you so if you make it possible for transmission from one host to the next to be really, really easy, then there's less selection against virulence, right? So it doesn't it doesn't matter from the virus's standpoint whether it causes severe illness, it will get to a new host anyway. Right. Now there's no calculus being done by the virus. It's just if it does this and it doesn't get to a new host, you don't see it for very long. If it does, you still do see it. But if you think about why does virulence evolve, virulence tends to evolve more as a byproduct of other things. It's not often under direct selection. Like there's no advantage, you know, for a viral version to cause more damage to the host. It causes more damage to the host because it's replicating really fast or it's infecting a whole bunch of tissues or you know, whatever. Um, and, or the body is causing damage in its response. Or the body's causing damage in response. That's right. That's right. Exactly. You know, those mast cells come out and start wreaking havoc. Yeah. Th that's right. So you, so you, the response itself, and, and there's a really interesting, you know, for years now, uh, been discussion about evolutionary medicine. And one of the important distinguishing questions in that is, is what I'm seeing a symptom that's caused by the action of a pathogen or is this my body's response to the pathogen? And sometimes it's your body's response. So, for example, if you treat if you treat fevers for relatively not dangerous uh, illnesses, they last longer because raising body temperature seems to be an adaptive response to try and you know kill viruses. Now, fevers can become too high, and then it's a big problem. So you never quite know. Is you know, let's say something causes diarrhea. Is that the virus? or bacterium that, you know, is uh, benefiting from that because you're expelling more into a water supply, for example, and it reaches new hosts, or is that your body trying to get rid of it? Mm -hmm. So these are questions that you kind of need to understand when you're trying to come up with strategies. But through all of that, something like, well, clean water will work regardless, which it is. <laughs> right. So, and that's the same with this. So uh, regardless of whether the variant binds well to cells or, you know, escapes immunity, if it can't get into your respiratory tract, it can't do anything. And all of those other mitigations, the vaccines are one thing, and they still are doing a good job at protecting against severe acute illness, if you keep them up to date. But the other mitigation measures, you know, air filtration, whether you're filtering it with a Corsi Rosenthal box on the floor, or you're putting it on your face, uh, in the form of an N95, ventilation, avoiding dense crowds, you know, where ventilation is poor. If people are testing and then avoiding contact while they've, you know, tested positive or if they've been exposed, those are all variant proof. There is no variant that can evolve, <laughs> right. uh, you know, to escape air filtration. It, it, it's just a physics thing, right? Biology is awesome. And I love biology, but sometimes physics does win. Maybe it's the toy poodle theory of COVID evolution that, you know, through selective pressure, we can just make it smaller and smaller and then masks. Uh, yeah. Some, but even a toy poodle can only get so small, right? I mean, there's a limit exactly. to how small you can make anything before it just can't functionally be that thing anymore. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot of value in remembering that 
not only do certain mitigations work against any variant, but using them also prevents transmission, which is what drives the capacity of viral populations to keep evolving. Just mm -hmm. you need replication. You need you need them to be making mistakes and for selective pressure to be operating. One of the sort of core principles in evolutionary biology is that population size is really important. So natural selection as a process is much stronger when the population is very large. And so a lot of viruses in a lot of hosts means that the not only is there more variation being generated through mutation because there's more contributing to that variation mm -hmm. it means the selection is also stronger than it would have been you're not going to lose you're not you're less likely to lose potentially fit variants from the virus's standpoint due to chance if you've got very large populations so we we also increase the power of selection if we allow large numbers of a virus to be out uh, out there replicating so again you know we're not we're not powerless to to impact the processes of evolution and the impacts itself of that evolutionary um, outcome. So yes, mitigation is the key. I, you know, I can't, sometimes I feel like I say this way too much, but variants are evolving, but the, the answer to that is to have less virus. Right. Right. I mean, you yeah. know, it seems straightforward. We say this constantly and I feel like a broken record and half the time when I say it to reporters who are asking me, you know, maybe to speak on, you know, my position as someone who's immunocompromised and during COVID and, uh, you know, I'll say my real priority is making sure people understand that everyone's goal here is to reduce the amount of virus that's circulating. In terms of like why we talk about masking being a thing that can't be one way, why universal masking is superior to one way masking, it's not yeah. just about the individuation of health, it's also a kind of numbers game, right? Like every time we're exhaling, if you are shedding virus, we're sort of rolling the dice as to how much of that is going to be in the air, right? And then based mm -hmm. on the different levels of mitigation on the individual or in the space, in the physical environment that they're in, the weather, right? That's going to affect like how much virus the hosts are taking in. And that ultimately, you know, what immunocompromised people are advocating for when we're advocating for universal masking is that we can only gain access to society if we sort of <laughs> reduce the overall yeah. amount of virus. Like, for example, I recently had COVID. It's the second. It's like not the first time I've had COVID. Every time I've had COVID, it's been after I've had to get IV pulse steroids and I've gone from my regular level of immunosuppressed and my mm. normal level of mitigations, which is masking everywhere in N95s, avoiding crowds, avoiding, you know, the most busy times at the grocery store. Like when mm -hmm. my body's uh, environment changed because I was on IV steroids, those protections were still in place, but my environment made it easier for the virus to replicate. And I crossed that line of, you know, being not sick and being sick. But it's it's you know it's frustrating because in a certain sense the the sort of more that we allow covid to spread and the more that it's normalized to just assume that massive waves of infection are positive things that are going to bring us towards some kind of end imaginary end of covid like i think we keep being told over and over like this this variant's going to do it it's going to be over and it's like well what oh we we were absolutely told that over and over the first, the first omicron I, I, so people have forgotten that that was, I mean, the messaging was 
you know, Delta was more virulent than previous variants had been, at least the one, you know, more virulent than ones that had had uh, increased substantially in, in around the world. Uh, and then Omicron is mild, which that narrative <laughs> came out of a really preliminary observation in one place with one, you know, demographically pretty unique population, but really took hold. You know, it's going to be a natural vaccine. It will save us from Delta. Is this a friendly mutant? Is this a godsend even? Um, well, again, that's where you're forgetting that it's not just the severity of each individual infection on average that matters. It's how many there are. Canada, the UK, various other places just had the deadliest year of the pandemic in 2022. That was all Omicron. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned, you know, whether it's about large single peaks. And I, I, I can talk about what I think it is going to look like for the next while as we see this with this this cloud of variants. But I don't think it's large individual peaks anymore. It's sustained instead of large tsunamis and, you know, waves of various height it's a, a rising sea level and then high and low tide. So in Canada and the UK and various other places like that as well, you know, the low points during the Omicron year were higher in terms of hospitalization, were higher than the peak of the Delta wave. Right. I saw you tweet about this, uh, and I think you shared a graph of Canada and you said... right. What concerns me more than the height of peaks is the non-low of the troughs. Quote, yep. every Omicron low has been higher than the Delta peak. And and this was, again, hospitalization in Canada. And this is something that obviously it's like uh, I read that. I think you posted it a couple of days ago, I guess a week ago uh, at the time that this will be released. And I was like, let me look it up that it's, it's to see like where the United States is at to see if we're comparable and while the U.S. doesn't repeat that pattern. Part of it is because our hospitalizations are just so fucking out of control and out of whack. New York, though. So so New York, which is where I've looked most closely just because of the XBB15 thing, has had a pretty sustained level since Omicron showed up. Yeah. So it may be regional as well. Well, that's what I was about to say. If you start yeah. to break out the United States into certain regions and you start to look at more sort of localized clusters of outbreaks and hotspots within the U.S., you can not only see the pattern of it sort of moving around the country, but also you do sort of see similar patterns to this one you noticed in Canada. But also if you <laughs> hold Canada's hospitalizations up to the United States, it's it's a great way to, you know, lose your lunch. Um, I don't recommend doing it. But it's, you know, it's one of those things where it's it's a, a framing you hear and it like stops you and you can't stop thinking about it. And this is that kind of idea of like, yeah, it's not these peaks. Focusing on the peaks is, I think it's a tactic of misdirection, frankly. It's a kind of vaxxed and relaxed strategy because again, the peaks don't matter if the low level is so high that the hospitals are always strained. You know, like this whole idea of like waiting until the last minute, which is really sort of characterized the shift in, in pandemic policy from uh, the year 2021 to 2022. And I'm sure we'll continue um, as we see things go to the private market in the United States in particular. You know, the whole idea of, of sort of reacting to once the hospitals fill up in the first place, <laughs> as, a, as it's a backward looking measure. Absolutely. I've been playing that game for, for quite a while. So yeah. here in, here in, at least with Canadian data, you know, and I should say that that pattern of the lows not 
coming down is also true in the UK and France and Denmark. And so it's not, you know, it's not, there's something specific about Canada there. The game we've been playing is, well, if hospitalizations go up, we will introduce mitigations. And the <laughs> thing about that is, well, that's a lagging indicator. And we know pretty well that the the earlier indicators are pretty good predictors that we're going to end up with that lagging indicator. So I've called the last, well, every Omicron wave. I mean, I've had, you know, there's arguments with institute within institutions too. So when I was a department chair, I was arguing, you know, look, BA2 is coming. It's going to be a problem. We're not, we're talking about, you know, going back to campus in January 21 with, I said, that's not going to happen. It's, this wave is coming. Well, you know, uh, what we hear is it's, you know, not as severe. I'm like, you're not looking at the data. Look at wastewater. Look at the UK. These are predictors right. that work really well. And of course, we were not back on campus early in January because it did cause a significant wave. So, you know, the indicators are there and we're, we're not using them as as indicators. Uh, we're, we're using them as, well, people will mention waste, wastewater when it's coming down. Of course. You know, we're heading in the right direction. Therefore, we can remove protections. But uh, never the other way around. Never, oh, this is happening. And every other time this has happened, it's led to, you know, it has continued along this this direction. Uh, so those are, those are you know, those are concerns that we, we just seem not to do. At 2021, you know, where, depending on where you were, but here, there were significant lulls, right? Cases were really low in the summer of 21, for example. We didn't get a break in 2022. The we had a summer wave, which wasn't supposed to happen, right? We weren't supposed to get. It's supposed to be more seasonal. We don't get summer waves. Well, we've had mm -hmm. four waves out of four seasons. Yeah. So it's just not, you know, it, it that to me is more concerning. I, and then if you go back all the way to 2020 and early on, when it's like, wow, we might hit 1,200 cases. You know, I remember those like, wow, it is really taking. Like, we might hit, you know, 10,000 cases in the province. Well. <laughs> You know, we're, we've been way above orders of magnitude higher than that. I mean, you know, and and just it's just normal. Okay, you know, that's that's the thing that gets me. Um, the other thing is, you know, we were talking, we've been talking about how there's a tendency to look at one factor or to ignore the importance of changing and complex, you know, scenarios. So even if, and I'm saying even if the number of cases were lower than the original Omicron. We're now a year in and hospital capacity is not what it was, you know, in November of 21 when the first Omicron hit, right? I mean, hospital staff are exhausted and we've got other respiratory viruses taking off that, you know, have been taking off this, this since the fall, you know, so it's just not the same context either. Yeah. So, you know, both both the, the numerator and denominator have been changing in terms of, you know, numbers going in and the capacity to handle them and so on. And we're just not factoring that. We just keep saying, well, relative to this wave, this one parameter is lower, not putting it in context of what's happened over the, the entire year or what have you or where that baseline is now. And yes, it's going down. That's great. Is it going to go down to something we would have considered reasonable. I, I looked at COVID, you know, the case, the hospitalizations in Canada, and these are data you have to take with a grain of salt, but, you know, testing is lower now than it was. So I think it's fair to say, uh, if you're seeing a lot of cases in the hospitals, that is probably an underestimate. Mm -hmm. But, you know, where we are right now would have been the worst wave if this had happened before the first Omicron. Like if this, it, where we are with hospitalizations in Canada had happened pre-November, 21, we would have said this is the worst wave yet. Yeah. It's the, it's one of the lower Omicron waves. 
Yeah. So that context is important. The only thing that I would add is just to call back to your earlier point about despite all of the viral evolution that has happened and will happen, masks and filtration, like these are things that we still work. It's like uh, in a recent episode that we did of the show covering sort of how masking gets killed. We go from like 2020 forward. I, I left that even more frustrated with the line, oh, like when a new variant arrives, we'll reach for masking again, yeah. which is something we saw in the US, like which led to our first summer wave in 2021, like spurred by Biden's like, we've declared independence over the virus. You can have your 4th of July party, take off your masks in May when we're not even like halfway through a vaccination campaign. It was like, it's so frustrating to sort of be thinking about the conversation we've been having and the reality of, of variants, right? To think of the line, when a new variant comes, we'll pull masks out again. I mean, come on, the most unserious shit. Well, that's that that's what that it has causation reversed in yeah. the sense that if you remove all those mitigations and transmission goes up, you're more likely to get a new variant that you need to worry about. That mm-hmm. not the other way around. That when it when it happens in this vacuum, then we'll respond, right? Right. I mean, we do create the environment in which it's evolving. And it's an obvious point, but I just wanted to make sure that we no, had that sort of out there and, and obvious. Well, yeah. and, and just to, to to revisit that that critically relevant, you know, reality, which is those same mitigations, clean air, uh, you know, high quality masks worn correctly, isolating and not gathering in, you know, large crowds where it's not ventilated and so on. Those work against any variant now and in the future. And the flu and RSV. And flu. You know, we could talk about that because because those mitigations absolutely crushed respiratory viruses Mm -hmm. other than COVID, right? So it's kind of mind boggling that we don't sort of say, wow, we should just have less virus and period, right? But then there's that notion that you need it in order to to have your immune system not be weakened. But we don't, we never talk about that with water. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that nobody says, you know, you really need to have poop in the water or else we're not going to have immunity to cholera. It's like, no, you have clean water. And it, and it's a scandal and should be a scandal if there are communities that don't have clean water. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. that that's that's how we approach that. We don't do that with air, which is kind of interesting. We have technologies to do it with air if we wanted to, but we we seem not to to think of it the same way. And I think just less infection is always better. There's no <laughs> case where being infected with a pathogen is a good thing. That just isn't that makes no sense. But I mean, I think maybe one thing to to talk about a little bit is is um, why the why that's different now, especially so, and that ties in with the idea of nicknames and things. So if you want, I can t- sort of give the the here's the history of COVID variants, and then this is why it's different. Like it really has changed in the last six to eight months. Sure, absolutely. So you know, we had an initial spread globally of of the the first virus, which which we call the wild type. So this is the one that you know arose. In, in Wuhan and China and then spread around the world. Depending on where you were, it may have caused two distinct waves in Canada. It did, I think it, it's probably true in the US as well. And then after that, it was essentially the story of variants. So new versions of the virus evolving through these evolutionary mechanisms, right? Random mutation, just chance mutations, and then selection, natural selection. Some of those mutations conferred an advantage to the virus in, in the particular environment that it was in at the time. So the Greek letter naming system reflected that, and it was intended to you know, indicate to people that these are different from what was circulating previously. So it's not 
just a continuation of what you saw previously, it has the potential to cause a new surge or a new wave. Now, most of the named variants, and there are two categories in that system, there's variants of interest. And then if they're if they are increasing more, then they would sort of graduate to variants of concern. There's been multiple uh, different ones given names, but only a few actually ended up causing significant you know, waves. So depending on where you are, you might have seen wild type and then wild type again, then alpha, then delta, then the first Omicron. Uh, that worked fine. That naming system worked just fine because it was one thing at a time, essentially. Everyone understood delta is not the same as what was just circulating. Now, we may have misused it when we were talking about the first Omicron. For example, Omicron will save us from Delta, <laughs> but everyone understood that Omicron was different from Delta. Everyone right. understood it had different properties and that we needed to have a, a response that was appropriate to that. Or in the case of that messaging, an inappropriate response, which was yeah. let it uh, Our Beyblade era. Yeah. Yeah. And it was even fine for the first several Omicron waves. Now, the, the World Health Organization has not allocated a, a new Greek letter for over a year. Omicron was the last one. They've not given any new one since then. And, you know, there's debate about whether that makes sense. I'm actually fine with it as long as the criteria, which are clearly different, are sort of laid out. So it used to be if it has genetic properties that, you know, distinguish it from other ones and it has the potential or is clearly causing, you know, a significant uh, change in infections, then it gets a name. So you may have seen, I've, you know, posted a few evolutionary trees of different variants. And some of the ones that got names are really closely related to each other and didn't do anything. I, you know, they got names. Omicron, look at how diverse that group is. There's 650 lineages right now recognized yeah. within Omicron. And they're quite different from each other. Some of them are very different from each other. So, but in any case, they're all Omicron. But even within the first few waves, that was still okay because you could talk about, the, you know, the Omicron and then you could talk about BA2. And BA2 caused a wave. And then you could say, well, BA5 seems to be rising. And then BA5 caused a wave. And then that's where we kind of have a shift. So yeah. BA5 rose in the summer. And then we sort of had a shift to where it kind of didn't cause a massive peak in the same way. It plateaued, but it just didn't come back down. So in various places, there was a resurgence of BA5 after a bit of a dip in the fall. And then since then, it's been descendants of BA5 in many places. So the BQ variants and, and so on. And it just hasn't really come back down. Uh, you know, it's gone up and down a little bit, but it's just been this sustained level. And what's different now is instead of one variant at a time that we can talk about, okay, Delta and now Omicron, and then even within that, BA1, BA2, BA5. Now it's it's not one thing. It's not one thing in any one place, and it's certainly not one thing around the world. So even right this minute, we're talking about XBB15 a lot, but there's not much XBB15 in the UK. CH11 right. is a concern there. There's not much of it in Australia. XBF is a concern there. Uh, and even in, within the US, as we said, BQ1 and BQ11 are still you know significant there. So it's just not that story anymore. So instead of having one variant, that would kind of you know come along and rise really quickly, cause a very distinct and large peak, and then descend and to be replaced by the next thing that came along. We don't have that anymore. We don't have one variant that is rising to total prominence. We have this collection of variants that are all kind of jockeying. And in some places, one becomes more prominent. In some places, another becomes more prominent. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's different suites of them 
And then they swap, right? So as I say, XBB, the first XBB was causing a wave in Singapore while the BQ variants were causing a wave in North America and Europe. And then XBB made its way to North America. Well, now it's a descendant of that one that's causing a surge in the US. So, you know, there's this movement around the world. Uh, in the case of China, you know, it, XVB15 is, is, has been detected there, but that's not what's circulating there. What's circulating there is descendants of BF7 and BA5 too. Uh, so specifically BF714 and BA5248 and 49 right now. Uh, those circulated, you know, at least BF7, to relatively low effect outside of China in the summer and early fall didn't do a whole lot, surging massively in China, because the environment in China is different. They have a different immunological backdrop for the vi for the virus to be experiencing. Immune escape is not so important. Right. It's going to be about transmissibility. So the question is, where did we get those major variants? And, and as I said, I think it's fine if the uh, World Health Organization wants to use Greek letters only for really distinct, separately evolved lineages. So uh, Omicron is not descended from Delta. Delta is not descended from Alpha. They're deeply divergent, right? They have deeper ancestry in the evolutionary history of the virus. Where do those... Uh, so if that's the case with, with what we're going to do, we're not going to name anything that's descended from Omicron with a different letter. It will never be a pi right. or a rho if it's if it's part of... If it evolved from within Omicron, then okay, but let's be clear about that. We also have now, uh, instead of you know, one or a relatively small number of variants within those named groups, as I say, we've got using the Pango lineage system, which is also great, uh, but it's technical names. There's 650 of those now within Omicron. So it gets to be really complicated. What it's we're confusing. missing, it's confusing. And I'll talk about why I think nicknames, you know, what, what the intent of nicknames was within that. But the question is, where do we get these? you know, these deeply divergent variants, and then where do we get the ones that are in the soup? Mm -hmm. and, and there is a difference in the evolutionary explanation for those two. So it looks like uh, the major divergent Greek letter name worthy variants evolved within individual hosts. And when viruses are evolving, they, they're doing it in, at two different levels. They, they do it within the in, an individual who's infected, and they'll also do it at the level of the host population. So when you get someone who's infected and they have a longer term infection, the virus doesn't stay the same in that individual. So it, 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 there will be a, essentially a swarm of, of slightly different versions of the virus in the body, either because you got infected with you know, slightly different versions when you breathed it in or and or it mutated right in different cells and they're slightly different now. So there's competition among those different versions within each person's body while they're infected. And if you're infected for a longer period of time, there's more of that happening and certain traits will evolve. The, the, the kinds of things that will be advantageous in that environment are ability to replicate faster than other versions. You know, the ability to attack cells more effectively than other versions, ability to uh, attack more types of cells than other versions. So that's where virulence, like higher virulence can potentially evolve because it's it's sort of not limited to can you get to another host? It's it's can you outcompete the ones that are in the same host as you? Then they some of those will re-enter the general population and start spreading. At the level of the host population, it's it's about getting into new hosts. Mm -hmm. The competition is with with uh viruses that are infecting. Uh, multiple hosts. And so is it transmissible? Can it move effectively from one individual to another? So for example, is there a higher viral load? So if I sneeze out 
you know, 10 times as much virus as, as you do because of the variant that I have, that's probably going to be more effective at infecting a new host. Or if, if it's higher or lower in the respiratory tract, or it has to get to, if I have to breathe it really deeply in versus it can get in through my nose, right? Those kinds of, of differences. And then there's, can it get around, uh, once it gets to a host, can it get around their immune system? So what we've seen in the last while is, or at least initially, we had those deeply divergent variants that seem to be evolving probably in individual hosts. And now we've had mostly evolution at the level of the population, specifically about immune escape. So that's just a really different sort of level being emphasized now. So we're not seeing the kind of deeply divergent things. We're seeing immune escape evolving really quickly in a whole bunch of lineages. And we're seeing not only divergent lineages, but convergence of the same kinds of mutations independently showing up and being favored in multiple lineages because they confer immune escape abilities. So we've got this you know, huge diversity of things evolving at the level of hosts. So that's another thing that's different. And what is challenging about that is now we're in a situation where we can't just talk about one variant, right? You could before, you could say alpha, oh no, this is delta. Oh, Omicron's different from delta. BA2 is different from BA1. Now you've got hundreds of lineages and it becomes this alphabet soup. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to communicate about. And the analogy I've used in terms of where we are now, which again is, is new-ish, is Omicron is now a name that refers to a large evolutionary group. So it's like mammals. <laughs> yeah. And at the, at the other end of the sort of spectrum, we have the technical pango lineage names, which are very, very descriptive, excellent and useful for technical discussions, but not particularly accessible, right? So for example, if you, if, if you said to me, what is that making that noise in the bush over there? And I said, mammal. <laughs> Not that helpful, right? There's no. not a lot of information conveyed there. Flip side of that, if you said, what's that making that rustling noise over there? I said, uh, musculus or radius norvegicus probably. Some people will know <laughs> what I'm talking about. Uh, a lot of people won't. If I said it's a mouse or a rat. Right. You immediately know what I'm talking about. And what we have in biology, you know, for animals and plants and other things is another level, an informal level which is common names. We have common names. We don't have common names for all 6,000 or so species of mammals. We have common names for the ones that matter to us and the ones we need to talk about. So we have, you know, things that are livestock or pets or that chase us or that are delicious or, that, you know, carry disease or whatever it is that we encounter and need to be able to communicate about, we have common names for. Those aren't official names. We have a scientific Latin name for everything. That's the official technical name. And that's what you use in scientific discussion. And we have the higher taxonomic classification, like a whole group, mammals. Both of those are fine. Mm -hmm. But to communicate more generally about a subset that matters, we use common names. You know, And we, that was what's, what I felt was missing with the variants, especially. And that wasn't necessary before. It is now because we've got all these different ones. And it's hard to keep track. And we are still asking people to care about variants. But it's not easy to kind of let them keep track of which ones we're talking about. We still need to communicate about these things. So the idea of nicknames was, look, we're just having trouble keeping track of all the ones that we need to talk about. So common names are the sort of thing that's missing. Um, the decision to go with Greek mythological creatures was based on two things. One is the first nickname, which I didn't coin. A guy named Xavier Ostali on Twitter suggested uh, Centaurus for BA275 
And uh, I think I think it was thinking about it as a constellation, but it's also a Greek mythological uh, creature. And I and the other reason was the Greek letter naming system. So if we use Greek mythological names, kind of goes along with the Greek letter naming system. It's informal. There's they're more memorable. Let's start there. I initially suggested just going alphabetically through the list, um, but then we realized if you have a whole bunch of those that start with A. Right, you know it, that's just as confusing. And then I got, you know, there's some cr- criticism about some of the names were too long. So let's skip any that are kind of too long or hard to pronounce or whatever. Uh, and so, like I said, we've there were about 19 of those beforehand uh, when XBB15 came, and people pointed out it has this combination of high immune escape and ACE2 binding capacity. It's certainly something we're going to need to talk about. It needs a nickname. I, you know, we have this sort of informal group on Twitter tracking variants and talking about them and stuff. And I said, and, and we said, yeah, we need a name. I said, well, here's a couple that are left and Kraken kind of came to mind too. That's not actually a Greek one. It's Scandinavian, but it it's familiar. I mean, it's a hockey team, it's a Seattle hockey team. It's a rum, you know, it's a, it's, it's famous from a line in a cheesy 1980s movie. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's common in popular culture. So I, we said, okay, well, let's call it that. That's fine. So the, the tweet that, you know, introduced that name was was basically this thing definitely gets a nickname i suggest kraken and then on to sort of here's some interesting properties of it that particular one got kind of picked up i don't think it is causing the kind i mean you know the concern is if you name things after scary monsters uh (laughs) by the way most of the most of the names have not been what you would call monsters anyway right so kraken is descended from XVB one, which was Hippogriff, and that one was descended from XVB, which was Griffin. Uh, so, I mean, these are not you know scary things. It it just it's called Kraken because we needed a name, and this is a catchy one, and it'll help us to kind of distinguish it from the other ones. So, you know, it's just some way. It's just a way to do something that's a little bit clearer than uh, the the alphabet soup all the time. So, you know, people will say, is the same thing in China the one that's going on in in the US. And I said, well, in the US, it's actually XBB15 and BQ1 and BQ11, but it's BF714 and, and BA5248 in China. That's not the same as in the UK there. It's It's got some CH11 as well as the BQs, but in, in Australia, it's XBF. Yeah. You know, you, I've lost you already, no, right? Yeah. I go, no, it's not Kraken in, in China. Right. Right. It's, it's a descendant of Minotaur and Triton. Right. And I, I don't, and I've said, like, if that doesn't help in what you're trying to communicate, don't use it. But the point of it was specifically because we should not focus on one variant at a time. It's specifically because we need to be discussing multiple variants at the same time. That's why we need nicknames. We didn't need it. Mm-hmm. Or when it was one variant, one wave. And so, you know, that, that so it, it can't be that it was to really stress how important one of them is. It was invented specifically because we shouldn't do that. Right. Right. Anyway, and I think it's been pretty effective. I think it's been it's been helpful for people to say, oh, okay, I get it. There's a different thing from what we saw before that it's causing this. And and almost, I would say, just, just about every piece I've seen on it has started out the Kraken variant. What do we need to know? And then it gives a very reasonable, we don't know if it's more virulent. We know it, it has these properties. It's been described as highly transmissible. It's recommended you get boosted and you wear a mask and blah. Like that's been almost every discussion has been like that. I don't see how that equates to panic. Right. Right. No. And I, I think one of the reasons why 
that reaction kind of bubbled up on Twitter. And you're always going to see that any even any discussion of the variants like, oh, yeah, that's that's going to be labeled fear mongering. I mean, we've (laughs) we've gotten so much heat here on this show for mentioning the existence of breakthrough infections. Yep. And yeah, it's the same exact crowd, right? Like it is exactly the same people you would predict. Right. Always. No. And, and, you know, I think part of it really ties into, well, what is the rhetoric that is being used to justify the ongoing organized abandonment of of COVID protections and, and of the population in favor of COVID policy that is not only prioritizing a kind of economic response that is pretty impossible in the current context that we're living in right if we're talking about environment and the like the host environment that we're living in this is like not working out so great right and it's it's funny because the very thing that would actually achieve this economic outcome that is the kind of priority that really drives a lot of the thinking like we have to quote unquote get back to normal we got to like get back to consumption and real life and sociality and seeing each other's faces or whatever the fuck you know what i mean like (laughs) all those lines Um, The very thing that is preventing them from living their best lives and doing their brunch and whatever the fuck they want to do is the fact that we are pretending like we can just not look at COVID and that it'll go away. Yeah, I think that's all true. And I was just going to say, I think I I think also many of the issues we're seeing are, are not unique, like I said. So a lot of the misconceptions about variants is you know, just the same misconceptions about evolution in general. And in this case, I think it's the same uh, mistakes about scientific communication. Like, I think there's, you know, one of the, like a lot of the responses have been, most of the responses, I'm ignoring a lot of it because it's just the same, you know, you say anything about COVID and it's the same response, right? Everyone sort of, anyone who's COVID conscious is aware of that reaction in that little echo chamber. Uh, But, you know, in terms of what I have seen, it's been things like, this isn't coming from an official whatever, right? This ne- the, the, we shouldn't be uh, unofficial communication about this stuff. Um, it's uh, the public doesn't need to know about variants, which blows <laughs> my mind, right? Like I just think, really, um, if they want to know, they should be. They should. We should do everything we can to make it as accessible and as correct as possible. Telling them they don't need to know. That is so patronizing, you know, infantilizing this, the the so-called the average person like that phrase makes me cringe. And then the other, uh, you know, there's obviously there's credentialism and all, which which is odd because the people who are doing the work to discover and characterize and database and track variants are people like bioinformaticians and evolutionary biologists and virologists. They're not medical, you know, or public health people. So it's just weird that we wouldn't know about talking, you know, lineage diversity. That's exactly what I've been teaching for 20 years. Well, see, the real expertise you need is something like ZDog MD, which is like hours and hours of primping <laughs> yourself and, and preparing for appearances on camera and getting, your, I guess so, you know, your I facial so. expressions I mean, I, you know, down. Maybe. Yeah. I, I, I've, you know, I, I don't get any, <laughs> there's, there's nothing. I don't have a sub stack. I don't no. have a, I don't have a, you know, subscribe to this. I don't have a paid newsletter. I don't have any of those things. There's no speaker fees. No. I'm just trying to communicate this because that's my job. My job is to teach evolutionary concepts. And, you know, I was an editor-in-chief of a journal called Evolution, Education, and Outreach, right? I mean, it's yeah. this is something I'm passionate about. And this is a great 
case of, of where we need to understand this. And so that's what I've been trying to do. And I've found it getting increasingly challenging with this getting bogged down in the technical naming. Mm -hmm. So this was a way to alleviate that and get back to here's the sort of concepts that are important and what's going on. Uh, but this notion that the public can't doesn't need it or can't can't understand, understand it. it. Yeah, it's so paternalistic we'll, or yeah. we'll panic or we'll panic. Mm -hmm. And I you know, there's there's plenty of toilet paper in the stores still, even though Kraken was named. I mean, there, you know, nobody's freaking out. I haven't seen anyone freaking out. I, I've seen, as they say, lots of discussion, but all of it. Is, at least what I've noticed, noticed is what do we know? Here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. Here's what you can do. You know, it's mm -hmm. if I, 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 it wasn't like the nicknames were not put in place to influence people's behavior. It, it wasn't meant to be a communication tool in that sense. It was meant to help us talk about variant evolution. But if it has this side effect in the end of people put on a mask because they realize it's surging again, people go and get boosted or, you know, whatever it is, or they say, you know what, maybe I will look into better ventilation or something uh what i don't understand why that is a problematic outcome like maybe you don't agree with the the means but the means weren't intended for that end anyway but if that is the end then let's talk about you know if is there a way to do this in a, in a in a system that doesn't run into any of those other concerns so i don't care what the names are you know um i we've we said let's not use stuff like pokemon and stuff that kind of belittles the 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 severity of the situation but most of the greek mythological names have been either tangentially you know known things or you know they're some of them have been depicted as pretty cutesy things like it's just been a series of names that follow a theme and that can be anything where there's a list of names available um i don't care what it is and i and i'm happy if if who or somebody else wants to have an official uh system for highlighting certain you know, what they would call subvariants of Omicron that are worth talking about. Uh, and it, they chose a neutral naming system and had some clear criteria. I'm, I would use that. Right. That's not when I, you know, I'm trying to explain about variant evolution. I'm not trying to get people to do one thing or another. I, I, I do emphasize when people talk about, you know, this particular variant seems concerning. I go, yep, but here's the same thing you should do is get your boosters, wear a mask, ventilate, you know, avoid crowds where you can. That it's always the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. So some people will say, well, it doesn't, you know, this is the, the the other criticism as well. Knowing about variants doesn't change. It, it has no bearing on people on, on what they should be doing. I think it does have a bearing though on whether they're doing it. So, you know, booster rates where I live are at 27%. Uh, so when you see things like, well, don't worry about, you know, this variant because the, the boosters still work. I go, they do work if you get it and people aren't getting it. Right. So, like I said, if it has this beneficial side effect, and if um, if agencies see that as a, a a useful way of communicating, if nothing else, maybe it shows that the that you know quote, I'm not even going to say it. If it shows that lots of people are legitimately, in, I was going to say the public, but if 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 lots of people are legitimately interested in understanding what's going on with with evolution of the virus, then let's do everything we can to make that as open and uh interesting yeah and accessible as we can right. right like that that's what that's what scientific communication is about right well and i i feel like a lot of people are kind of coming at this in bad faith saying like that this is a, a framing or a nickname that's like intentionally trying to sort of 
in a noble lie way, like coerce people into acting in their better judgment. But yeah, but you'd have to have not read a single thing <laughs> I've actually said about it. Right. No. And it's funny because it's like that's also the exact same sort of bullshit as, you know, pop psychology that is being employed in the other direction, which is the kind of nudge philosophy bullshit, which, you know, they're, they're calling out a kind of imaginary of what they're doing, of what minimizers are doing, which is sort of finding one weird rhetorical trick every time there's a kind of new development that could possibly you know, elaborate on or expand upon someone's understanding of the pandemic. There's like always these knowledge producers who step in with their kind of one weird rhetorical trick as to why, you know, this new information or this new way of understanding or this expansion of the understanding of COVID does not justify that reaching back for the mass, that reaching back for yep. protection. No, that's right. And because they've really hinged this kind of social and political and class argument that they've, you know, cobbled together out of a bunch of like bullshit that they're dressing up as some sort of coherent politics and some sort of, you know, fighting for the working man and making sure that people can, you know, earn the living. And, you know, it's it's the most disgusting health capitalist nonsense, but it's really does hinge on the ability to continually kind of reproduce the denial of um, the evolution of COVID as being significant or as being at all related to the levels of just the actual infections themselves. And I think it, it's funny because it really just it does kind of reproduce this nudge philosophy that, that we know doesn't work and in in of itself is coercive. There is coercion in withholding information just as much as there is in providing it. It's about context and, and the kind of sociality involved. You can't just say like, oh, by by giving something a name that's coercive by withholding a name and relying on a system that's really obtuse and difficult to remember and highly professionalized how is that not also coercive it's 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 it it goes be it goes well past that though so it goes to absolutely. omicron is mild yeah absolutely uh, i we saw you know official takes from provincial health here in canada where it's good news that it's highly transmissible but less virulent like we don't know that it's less virulent nobody's right. shown that yet we don't know that so it's not good news Unless you, even if you knew that, because Omicron, the first one was pretty widely accepted to be less virulent than Delta, caused vastly more damage than Delta, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, So that's just not, like, that isn't even withholding. That's framing in a way that isn't correct, you know? We're okay because boosters work, right? But like I said, it's less than 30% are up to date on vaccines where I live. So, and it was one of the better, you know, municipalities in in the country initially for vaccine uptake. So, uh, you know, you can't kind of do that. So, but in any case, I look at it like this and I say, if people are interested, I'm going to try to provide a way for people, for them to understand it and where I need to make adjustments because it's getting too complicated. And I don't mean it's too complicated for the average person, quote unquote. I mean, it's getting too complicated for me. Yeah. <laughs> to be able to to frame it in a way that that makes sense, right? So, you know, I find it unwieldy. Sometimes I go, okay, so BA15 is a descendant of B- XBB, which was a merger of BJ1 and BM111, but BJ1 is actually this, and BM111 is actually, you know, BA275311111. Like, 
you know, if I have to keep going and looking it up when I want to say something, and then it, clearly it's too complicated to communicate effectively. So let's find some shorthand and I'm and, and whatever works, works. Right. No, and I, I think the the thing too that is really important and I hope people can sort of understand is that despite all of these narratives that we're sort of constantly being exposed to that might say otherwise, anything we can do now to sort of invest in reducing infections, in cleaning the air, in distributing masks, for example, in the United States, in preventing COVID care and therapeutics and vaccines from getting kicked to the private market, which is something that the Biden administration has been marching forward with despite any and all information that sort of comes and they said that they would be taking into consideration. You know, it's like regardless of anything that's come up, the plan has just moved forward anyways. And the line is like, well, we're not in the same place as we were two years ago. And it's like, well, yeah, we're kind of in a worse place because we squandered a great opportunity on a vaccine technology that we then, you know, fucked around with and haven't been actually working on vaccine equity despite all of the lip service to it you know yeah vaccine i was just going to say global i was yeah global vaccine inequity was a big part of the issue well still is but you can also have vaccine and other inequities within a country right and you can make those worse right and that ends up so i mentioned for example the societal inclusion is good for everyone it's not a favor you know, to the people who are are most heavily affected, it's good for everyone. And that's the thing that kind of blows my mind is I, you know, we started out pretty good. We're all in this together. Let's flatten the curve. Let's take, you know, let's work, let's try to ease the strain on the healthcare workers and let's protect the most vulnerable and those things. And we were doing that, but for what, six months, maybe, I guess. Not even here. Not even. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's, you know, and, and it is absolutely the case that one of the reasons we're in the situation that we're in is that we we stopped thinking about the collective. We stopped thinking about the the a changing process. We stopped thinking about, you know, uh, strategies that work not only on a national scale, but but globally. globally. This pandemic is not a regional thing. And we keep talking, we're always talking about like what this country or that country is doing. Well, the virus doesn't live in countries, right? The virus doesn't know that. It just knows there's human hosts all over the world. That's it. I mean, borders aren't real, not just it doesn't not care to about viruses. Borders. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it, the borders are irrelevant other than where you have stark differences in, you know, politically imposed things. So, for example, China keeping to not zero, but quite low for, for years. And then now very, very different, right? And there's just probably a massive influx of different variants. There will be evolution in China of new variants and they will spread, but there's also evolution happening right now where you are and where I am. Yeah. Right. And those will spread potentially. So it's a global thing. It's all it's all human life we're talking about. And so this idea that, you know, we can further increase inequities is 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 even if, like I say, even if it's purely about strategy and your own you know, privileged kind of view, it's still bad for you to not care about equity. <laughs> Never mind the moral argument, right? Yeah. Well, and I, I think unfortunately, because of the response for the last two years, because of the circumstances we sort of find ourselves in, in, in the United States in particular, where the 
COVID response has really been collapsed into vaccines and therapeutics only. And <laughs> we've put all this additional sort of stress on that. And we're pushing that to, to the private market. We're going to see the same um, inequities and the same structural violence and social murder that's baked into our health finance system in the U.S., the private insurance system, mapped onto COVID. I mean, I, I think the problem that we're really facing in the coming year here in the U.S. in particular, and obviously what happens in the U.S. is not going to stay contained to the U.S., as we're saying. Like, So it really does even matter towards infections in other countries that the United States is going to move forward. I mean, we're going to see so many people losing their Medicaid coverage. We're going to see the things that are off-label not being covered by Medicare anymore, things that don't have formal approvals. You, it, There are like legal rules barring Medicare from paying for. We're going mm. to see the kind of austerity-driven social murder within nursing homes and long-term care facilities get so much worse. And this is all sort of on the back of this very predestined sort of framing that people approach this transition to privatizing COVID. And I think it's one of the things that right now we we have to try so hard to resist and to sort of talk ourselves out of this framing of like, oh, well, this move to privatize all this care is predestined and it's going to happen no matter what, because I think everything that we've talked about for the last hour, you know, just to imagine throwing more fuel on this fire that we've all been navigating for three years, specifically in the ways that we know the the U.S. health finance system can exacerbate structural inequalities, I think we're going to see some really, really bad effects, both short and long term, as a result of some of these decisions. So it's it's a time to it is a time to like embrace open communication and reject the kind of paternalism that says that people can't understand, so we shouldn't talk about it. It's absolutely a time to sort of be embracing educating people and, and making sure people feel like they can understand COVID because it's, you're, you know, we're in a position now where it's unavoidable, right? Like everyone is in a situation where they're having to deal with COVID in their lives, whether they wanted to or not, specifically because we've chosen to pretend that we can ignore it away. And I think that this is really kind of the struggle that we're going to be facing in the next year as things change, as information continues to become, you know, more difficult to sort of access in, in terms of a picture of the pandemic. We've seen shifts in reporting, things like, you know, New York Times is like shutting down its pandemic newsletter. And and there's a real kind of like the the lights are turned on at the bar. Last call was an hour <laughs> ago. Like they put on closing time. They're staring at you like, when are you leaving? Kind of uh, hurrying and rushing to get COVID over with. And ultimately, I think what you've just laid out really shows the stakes, not just the current landscape of where we're at now and our situation now and where we've been but the stakes of why we actually really need to be thinking not just in the immediate term about COVID, but in the long term, because it's this kind of churn of variance, this shift that you're saying from these peaks to moments where we are getting no break. The kind of temporality of COVID is changing as the virus evolves and as our responses to virus um, mitigation and virus policies have changed. We've seen these kind of patterns change, and this is only going to continue. It's not going anywhere. So this is really, 
you know, nickname or not, like, as you're saying, like, Mm. whatever tools we can use to make this accessible and to make it available to people so that we can work against this kind of growing privatization that we know is going to make things so much worse. I think this is absolutely the moment to be indulging in that and not sort of arguing over the semantics and tone of like which nickname was picked. That's, that's a distraction, you know? Yeah. Well, and I also think that again, so you raised the issue about mis misusing messaging to, to achieve a certain end on the other direction. I, I would have a problem with alarmism that wasn't honest in order to get people to wear a mask or something like I, Same. you know, like I, I, I don't believe the ends justify the means in that case. I think, and I also don't ascribe just to the deficit model of science education, right? Like if you just explain it more to people, then they'll make, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll do the right thing. So vaccine hesitancy doesn't work that way. Climate change denial doesn't work that way. We know that, but a, a part of it is making sure that people understand what's actually happening. And that's where I am interested, right? Like if, if it came out and, and it looked like this, you know, we could still get a variant that's a lot worse. We could still get a variant that's super transmissible and not virulent at all and conferred long lasting immunity. That would be awesome. And I would be the first one to say, this looks great. You know, I'm glad we finally happened. Pandemics all end at some point, but people are saying that like every time right you know and 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 and, or it's just this isn't going to do anything well it isn't going to do anything a to whom Mm -hmm. and what do you mean by anything like i look at you know if hospitals are are bogged down or even if there's people that you know their surgery got delayed because there was a surge of this or that that's not you know nothing right and and now, yeah. now extend that over three years and it's not it's absolutely not nothing and there's the moral injury that healthcare workers will experience when they're unable to kind of provide the care they want and the exhaustion and all those things like this needs to be kind of taken seriously in that regard but i just i'm just trying to communicate what's going on as best i understand it in a changing and 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 uh, always more complicated kind of a, a situation same yeah my first go concern is not man people are going to panic my first go-to concern is, you know, are people aware that they should still get boosters? You know, or you know, can people even access those boosters and tool and those whatever. tools? Right. right? Yeah. Like, uh, I'm much more concerned about, you know, do rural communities have any primary yeah, care or pharmacy access? Yeah. No. And and these are the kinds of questions that require people who are just trying to like make sense of what's going on that require us all to take so much time to combat. And it can be really frustrating to feel like we're always on the back foot. But I really, really appreciate, Ryan, you taking the time today, just really walk us through the kind of bare actual bottom line story about sort of how viral evolution works and also like why variants matter and why you should care. But I, I just appreciate just this conversation in general. And I'm I, I'm glad that we were able to have you on the show because I, I really appreciate it for a long time. You've you've been communicating on this for a long time. And, you know, it's one of those things where as someone who studies eugenics, you're always like a little wary of someone who's got evolutionary biologist in bio oh yeah know. we've got a we've got we've got quite a history yeah in, no. in genetics and evolution for sure no but i really appreciate you coming and sharing your expertise and and helping you know 
sort all this stuff out today for everyone. So thank well, you. Well, it's my pleasure. And I, and I hope that, you know, the, the message people get is there's no, there's never a kind of right time to panic. What it is, is to understand what's going on and make decisions that are appropriate to that. And those decisions right now, as they have been, is to use the tools we have mm -hmm. and not to avoid using them because it's all Omicron or Omicron is mild or the pandemic's over or it won't affect me. Like it, it's, you know, uh, we still, I, I, in some in many ways, I feel like I'm not doom and gloom. I'm more optimistic. I'm like, we are not powerless, everybody. You know, I, what gets me down is when the, the folks who are saying, you know, well, everyone's going to get it repeatedly. You might as well accept it. I'm like, no way. I don't, I'm not a defeatist like that. Yeah. When have we ever won? Like, when have we ever succeeded in taking an attitude like that to a to a societal challenge? No, we're not powerless. And we have the understanding and the tools. We can track variants. We can, you know, d develop additional uh, engineering based tools and uh, pharmacological tools. And we can have behavioral changes and we can look out for each other and those kinds of things. And that all, I think, can be very effective if we do it. So I feel like we still have within our power and i think that's an important message right is that the, the point of explaining all this is not to make everybody exhausted and scared it's to make them understand that this is what's happening and and here's what we can do mm -hmm. no i mean and i i think it's also about trying to recognize that some of these things that we're told are predestined are mm. much more open for debate i mean the idea that science is settled the idea that you know, we can uh, find some sort of polling way out of this. These are all things in the that that narrow political will and that narrow the kind of options that we feel like we have, and that you know perpetuate political pessimism and the kinds of feelings of being abandoned and not being you know welcome in society, especially for immunocompromised mm -hmm. people right now, and and people with long COVID who are realizing for some of them for the first time you know, how much abandonment there is in our systems of care and how, you know, really kind of held together with duct tape and, and tinfoil everything is. And I, I think it's one of those moments where it's just important to sort of be taking a step back and talking about what's really going on. And, and, and I think, too, as we move forward, kind of recognizing that, you know, as much as there's constant perpetual gaslighting all around us, you know, there are ways to sort of to follow and to know what's going on and to recognize that the kind of limitations that we think are, you know, holding us back politically, that these are things that are much more negotiable and that we can actually push much further on. We just have to care a little less about respectability and kind of making that quote unquote perfect point because as we were talking about with the kind of nickname thing, a lot of that ends up being kind of bad faith criticism from people who are just trying to rhetorically perpetuate the status quo. And, you know, in terms of how this stuff is helpful for people's organizing, I hope that it kind of helps you think that about how these sorts of dynamics can inform things like workplace safety, things like trying to organize in terms of communicating like why COVID precautions at events are important too, because these mm -hmm. are all moments for us to sort of individually not just be like policing each other and judging each other's behavior, but be, you know, putting our thumb on the scale at the structural level, at the sort of institutional level through our day-to-day -day actions and our participation or refusal of the manufacturing of consent that's going on. Well, and I think there's also, you know, some thought to be uh, entered into 
how certain approaches we might take now are, are beneficial well beyond anything to do with COVID. So we mentioned other viruses, you know, other seasonal respiratory viruses, you know, there's a mandated um, measuring of, uh, I think of CO2 and, and ventilation standards in schools and in, in various places. Well, keeping CO2 alone down is good for learning Right. I, I, never mind all the other things that you might keep out of there. If you're worried about attendance, attendance at schools, let's let's have fewer infections of all types. Right. You know, those are the kinds of things that I think we could be doing. It's not just about COVID. Right. I mean, we can be doing those things and we'll have benefits f- forever. Like clean water may have started with thinking about cholera, but it's also good not to have heavy metals in the water <laughs> and all those kinds of things. Right. Like, I mean, right. you know. Once you've got that sort of attitude that we want this to be safe for everyone and clean, then hopefully you you achieve that. But, you know, the idea that, well, we don't need to because the pandemic's over, it's A, it's not. And B, it, it's it, the benefits extend way beyond, you know, the current uh, situation. So I hope we do have those conversations and I hope we do. Uh, people get motivated, for example, like I say, if, if people understand variant evolution and why knowing about them is important you know, they they understand investment in wastewater testing. And I don't just mean for COVID. Like, what about if we're testing for flu and emerging viruses? And, you know, those things are important. I, I think we could we could make great use of that moving forward as as just more tools to keep more people healthy for longer, basically. And here's one point that, that kind of illustrates my my seeing the way I see sort of some of this is I think everyone can find out what they want to find out about what's happening if those of us whose job it is to communicate this stuff do our do it as effectively as we can and so if people are interested it doesn't matter what your background is it doesn't matter if you've done you know a degree in biology or not at all it, if you're interested then you should pursue finding out and you sh- you have a right to understand it and one of the things that i found really positive in all of this is the folks who are tracking the variants and talking about them and, and sharing that information, it's not all people who, you know, do this, you know, genome sequencing for a living. It's citizen scientists who who happen to have, you know, skills in data visualization or they're just mm-hmm. interested in and they've 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 gotten up to speed on how to look for different, you know, changes in the sequence databases. And and I I, I thoroughly embrace that contribution of anyone who wants to kind of be involved. The metric for me is not your credentials. The metric is, are you doing stuff in an open, transparent way? And are you getting it right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I don't think of it as like, I think of it as uh, everyone that I've been interacting with a lot in the, in regard to the variant stuff as colleagues that, you know, like we're on the same team. It's not, well, you don't have tenure. So therefore (laughs) like that stuff is absurd. Yeah. And so anyone Anyone listening who's got any background or for any reason that they're interested in this stuff, you can and should be given that information. And, and, and so don't feel that you aren't qualified or aren't worthy to know it, despite what anyone may say. You absolutely are. And and I'm I'm and many others are happy to try to provide that explanation as best we can. Well, I think that is the perfect place to leave it. I really appreciate that. Uh, Ryan Gregory, thank you so much for joining me. If people want to follow you on Twitter, uh, he is at T Ryan Gregory. Again, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. And and keep doing the good work that you're doing. Oh, thank you. We will. And patrons will catch you on Monday in the patron feed for everyone else. We will catch you later next week. 
To support the show and get access to our second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it from your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week.